Take your Bible and turn it to John chapter 10, please. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 11 through 18. The word of the Lord reads, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken, taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Our great Father, we, we praise you for the work of Christ, our good shepherd. And Lord, this morning, may our eyes be open to see his glory and his goodness, that all that has been accomplished in our behalf, we pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts to receive that. I pray that your word would go forth in power and conviction and clarity, that, Lord, would you accomplish your purposes in our hearts and our minds, that you would change our lives for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you watch any movie or any play with a credible cast, I guarantee you that one of the most important questions that the actor must answer in order to effectively play any character is this. He must answer this question. What is my objective? What is this character's objective? This character that I'm seeking to play, what is this character's objective? What do we mean by that? In other words, what is it that this character wants? What do I want as this character? What is it that I want? What is my goal? What is my purpose? Every good actor must have a clear answer to that question. What is my objective? What am I doing here? What am I doing here in front of this camera? What am I doing here on this stage? What is my objective? And every scene is about how that objective is either developed, either advanced, or hindered. It's all about that objective, getting that. You think of a common romantic movie. The the guy wants what? The girl. Or, Or he wants true love. And he's thinking about how can I get true love. He has a clear objective. An action movie, a hero, what does he want? He wants to conquer the villain. He wants to save the city. He has a clear objective. And every scene is about furthering that or or that objective getting hindered in some way or another. There's always a clear objective. Every single person, even you, have an objective every moment of your day. You may not be aware of it, but you always have an objective. And that's when conflict happens, is that someone else's objective hits your objective. Or your objective is not God's objective. We always have objectives. Let's turn the corner here a little bit. In John 10, Christ began this chapter in verses 1 through 10. He began this chapter describing his appointment as the shepherd. His appointment as the shepherd. He says, as you recall, I am the door. I am the door. I am the only way. I am the true shepherd of Israel. I am the one. He clearly laid that out for us, that this was his role as a shepherd. And now... 
In this passage we read, we look to his objective, his mission as the shepherd. Jesus is painting a picture of himself as as not only the only shepherd, but also the good shepherd. In the Gospel of John, we've said this multiple times, that he uses seven I am statements throughout the Gospel of John to affirm his equality with the great I am, Yahweh but also to give us a picture and to describe his role as who he is as God incarnate. These seven I am pictures or statements give us a great picture of who he is as Yahweh in the flesh and who he is and what he came to do. And in all the I am statements of the Gospel of John, perhaps the most endearing and intimate title that he gives himself is that of a shepherd. Is that of a shepherd. Someone put it this way, that nowhere in all of Scripture is Jesus Christ more clearly portrayed as the shepherd of his people than in the 10th chapter of John's gospel. That here he gives us a clear picture of his role as shepherd, but also now his mission, his objective as the shepherd. What did he come to accomplish? What did he want to do? What is his mission? Well, as the good shepherd... His mission is redemption. His mission is redemption. And you stand on the ground, take for example, you stand on the ground and maybe you look up at the sky at night and you see this, all the stars and the vastness of creation. And we look at that and we marvel and say, well, this is amazing. Look how great the stars are and, and it's the vastness of the universe. And then you take a telescope and then you narrow in on the detail of a planet or of a star And you knew the vastness of creation, but now that telescope gives you a detail, a zoomed-in detail of greater things that you were never able to notice standing on the ground. And you see that through the telescope, and you're beyond amazed. You were amazed before, but now you have a greater appreciation. You're breathless because you saw the great detail of this vast creation. And so I, I hope that that's what you see as we approach this passage. That's a familiar teaching that Christ came to redeem. As we approach this familiar teaching, I hope that you get a peek into the detail of the mission of the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he came to accomplish. This is important and crucial for us to see this. And so I hope as you see this familiar teaching, this fast, great teaching, as we narrow in and we zoom in on the richness of it here, I pray that you would marvel at the wonder and the love that your shepherd has for you. That may we never lose our wonder of our Lord's love. He is the good shepherd, and his mission is redemption. Now let's zoom in here to see the details of this redemption. What are the details of this redemption? The first detail is it's sacrificial. This redemption is sacrificial. And what does he sacrifice? Himself. His very life. Just four times in these eight verses we read, he affirms that very truth. In verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 15, even as the father knows me, I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life. Verse 18, no one has taken it from me, but I lay it down. That he came to lay down his life. This was a sacrificial mission. That he gave up everything. This sacrifice is ultimate. That he gave up everything. He laid his life down. That's why he's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Ever think about what does he mean by good shepherd? 
that it's not just about morally right or wrong good, but he's good in the sense that he is the perfect, the authentic. He's he's the true shepherd in a class all by himself. He is the preeminent, the supreme one above all others. He's the good shepherd. And some Bible translations have loosely translated, he is, I am the shepherd, the beautiful shepherd. Because it encapsulates all that he is, that he is the perfect, the pure, supreme, good, beautiful shepherd. Let's draw out the metaphor that he uses here. Because for a typical shepherd, he lays down his life for the sheep. In the life of a typical shepherd, wolves, lions, bears, thieves, these were ongoing dangers for the flock of sheep. That there were a constant threat that, that to, to be stolen, to be attacked by wolves, lions, bears, that these were ongoing threats for a sheep. But a good shepherd, in that context, he does what in light of those threats? He guards the flock. He protects the flock from danger. He cares about those sheep, and so he protects it as a good shepherd. Unlike the hired hand, he mentions. Look at verse 12 again. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, he sees the wolf coming. And what does he do? And leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because why? Because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. So he gives two pictures here of a good shepherd and a hired hand. And as Jesus did in the first 10 verses of this chapter, he's contrasting his role as shepherd with that of the Pharisees. That the hired, one, the hired hand is one who is simply hired for the job. That he's there because he got paid to be there. He doesn't own the sheep. He doesn't care about the sheep. He's there because he's getting money at the end of the day. This is what the hired hand does. And so naturally, when there's, if there's any threat to life, to his own danger, what is this hired hand going to do? Running. <laughs> the sheep comes, or the wolf comes, I'm out of here. Because why? He's concerned about whom? The sheep? Himself. He's most concerned about himself. And so any threat, he's going to flee. If danger approaches, he protects first himself. And so naturally he flees because he's a hired hand for the job. He was hired there for the job, not to give up his life. He didn't sign up for that. And so at the expense of the sheep, unfortunately, this hired hand, he runs. When you think about any employee of an establishment, if a robber comes there and says, give me your money, what is that employee going to do? Here you go. I, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up to, to give my life. I'm getting paid minimum wage. <laughs> like, I'm here for the money. I'm not here for my life. And so naturally, give it up freely because they're there for one job. But Jesus uses this picture here to express that that's not the attitude of a good shepherd. And he is that good shepherd. That John 15 verse 13 is a rare picture when Jesus says that no greater love than this is what? That one would lay down his life for his friends. That's a rare picture for one who has such a love to lay down his very life for his friends. That's a rare picture. But that's not the picture of the hired hand. He doesn't own the sheep as it says here. And so he thinks, what do I care about the sheep? They aren't mine anyway. So in the spirit of selfishness, he flees. And in this picture here that Jesus is drawing here versus him and the, the teachers of the day, this is a, an appropriate p- picture for the Pharisees. This is an appropriate picture. Earlier in this chapter, he compared them, if you remember, to, to thieves and to robbers. 
because they're there trying to steal what's not theirs. They don't have a rightful claim at it. But here now he's calling them not only thieves and robbers, but he is calling them hired hands. And that's appropriate. Think about them. Have they shown any interest? Did they show any interest for that lame man in Bethesda in chapter 5? Did they care about him? Did they show one speck of pity for that woman caught in the very act of adultery? Did they care about that blind man who was, who was cured and healed of his blindness by the Lord in the very preceding chapter, chapter 9? Did they care that he, was, he could now see? I mean, this man was blind his entire life. And what was their primary concern? Hey, who's this man coming on scene? They didn't care about them. They didn't care about the sheep guard the flock. They were there to feed the flock, to protect the flock, that God placed kings and authority over in Israel. God put teachers to give them teachings. And all throughout the scripture in the Old Testament, those teachers were indicted because as a shepherd, they failed in their basic duty to love the flock. They're hired hands. In Jeremiah chapter 23, this is a one rebuke, a simple rebuke here. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. He says to them, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. Not only that, Ezekiel 34, another harsh prophecy against the shepherds of that day. It says in verse 1, the Lord came to him saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. What is he going to prophesy? Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe. Judgment, that's judgment. Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. I mean, these these are false shepherds. They're more concerned about themselves, feeding themselves. They're all about themselves. And God casts judgment on them because he placed them to be shepherds. And you have failed in that duty to care about what I care about most, my flock. And so naturally here in John chapter 10, Jesus comes to the scene and says, no, these are hired hands. And the same judgment that he pronounces in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the same judgment upon them. Woe. That they failed. As a hired hand, their devotion is ultimately to the paycheck, not the sheep. This is harsh judgment, harsh words that our Lord has against them. When you think about a car salesman, and a car, smells, car salesman will be your best friend on that lot. Man, he'll ask you all about your family tree, what you do for a living, how many kids you got, how many cousins you got, and where you've been. Where'd you go on your last vacation? Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, I've been there too. Man, they'll be your best friend. But as soon as you drive off that lot and you come back because there's an issue with that car, they don't even know your first name. <laughs> Why? Because they're most concerned about the commission, selling that car. They don't care about you. They don't care about you at all. They care about what's in your pockets because they're hired hands. That this is the horrible judgment that Christ gives to them. That they are hired hands and not the good shepherd. That these, these, these Pharisees of the day, they don't have true love nor ownership of these sheep. That they are motivated by the money and the notoriety. And if it comes down to their well-being or the flock, it's always them. But here, Jesus again says, I am the good shepherd. That's not his business. 
He's not the hired hand. He's not there for money or personal gain. The good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, his mission there was to lay down his life for the sheep, to be a sacrifice for them. He was to sacrifice his very own life for the benefit of the sheep, beloved, for you. That he did what the sheep could not do for themselves. He came to lay down his life as a sacrifice in your place. You could not do that. You could not save yourself. That you were in a desperate state and he came down and sacrificially gave up his whole life and laid it down for you. That this was sacrificial. And not only was this redemption sacrificial, but the second detail is that this sacrifice was particular. It's particular. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by this, his redemption is particular? Well, let me ask it this way. For whom did he come to lay down his life? What do you think about that? For whom did he come to lay down his life? I think you can see it's pretty clear in this passage. He came to lay down his life for his sheep. It's particular. He had a specific mission, a specific people in mind, his sheep. Look at verse, verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Verse 15. I know the father. I mean, even as I know, even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And as he reiterates in verse 14, he expresses the knowledge that he has for whom in 14? His sheep. And the knowledge that his sheep have for him. That this mission of redemption was sacrificial and a mission set on saving his own. That not everyone is his sheep. We know that not everyone confesses Christ as Lord. Not everyone is saved. But he came to lay down his life for whom? His sheep. And this is not a foreign idea to the rest of the New Testament. When Paul is speaking to the elders in Acts 20 verse 28, he tells the elders, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. What about this church? Which he purchased with his own blood. In other words, elders, keep over the flock. This flock is not just any flock. This flock is that the Lord purchased with his own blood. He bought this flock, and so guard it. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, it's the familiar passage we know in marriage. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, and what? Gave himself up for her. That Christ gave himself up for who? His church. That this mission he came was for his church. And even in this own context of this book, John chapter 17, a couple chapters forward, when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, he's praying some deep theological truths here. But just look at what he says in chapter 17, verse 6. He's praying, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me, he's praying to the Father, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out the world, and they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And in verse 9, I ask on whose behalf? Their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. That he's praying for those whom have been given to him by the Father. He's praying for the sheep. And let me tell you, beloved, that this redemption is particular. Christ did not fail in his mission. 
He said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He did not fail in his mission. All of his sheep will be saved because of his blood that was poured out on their behalf. He did not fail that all of his sheep will be saved because of his work. That not one sheep, that even the one, he leaves the 99 for that one. And his whole flock will be complete because he bought and purchased this flock with his own blood. He did not die in vain. That he died for his flock. It's for the sake of his sheep. That's why he says in verse 14 back in chapter 10 that he knows his sheep. He knows his sheep. And this, this knowing here is not just this mental knowledge of the sheep. It's this to know the sheep. He's talking about to know them in a loving and an intimate way. That it indicates an intimate and close relationship. That he knows his own and his own know him. This is an intimate knowledge he's describing here. It kind of points back to earlier in the chapter when he's talking about the shepherd when he goes into the sheep pen and pulls out his sheep. And if you remember in verse 3, and he calls out to whom? His sheep. And his sheep go to him. Why? Because they know his voice. And they know him. And so they go to him. And they, they says he follows them out and they follow him on out because they know their shepherd. This is the knowledge he's talking about. I know my own and my own know me. So when I speak, they follow because they know my voice. I know them. He calls them out. He says, by name, you're mine, and you follow me because I purchased you. I bought you. You are my own. But, he, but here's the, the striking part. Because look how he further describes this knowledge in verse 15, right after that. Look how he further describes this knowledge. He says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, but even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Did you catch that? That he compares this intimate knowledge of you to what? The knowledge that the father has of the son. That I know my sheep, my sheep know me, just as I know the father and the father knows me. I mean, think about that here. That he is comparing the intimate love, knowledge that he has for you to the same love and knowledge that the father has to the son and the son has to the father. In my opinion, this is one of the most striking comparisons in the New Testament here. That he would compare that love, that loving knowledge to you, to that relationship that exists there in the Trinity. That if you're in Christ, his sheep, this magnificent love has been given to you. And though this love may not be as, as close as the Father's love is to the Son, it is patterned after the Father's love to the Son and vice versa that it's patterned after that love and knowledge, and that it is true, it is unbreakable, it is intimate, it predates time, it was knowledge that was set in eternity past, this knowledge of you is true, it's unbreakable. This is an intimate knowledge here he's saying, that I know my own, and my own know me, just like I know my father, and my father knows me. One person said it this way, that believers are caught up in the deep and intimate affection that is shared between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That should cause you to marvel alone. This is not just any kind of love, but this love is a deep, abiding love that is patterned after the Father's love for his Son. And this love is clearly, it's not given to everybody. Because this, this love is described as being for whom? Jesus' own words, his own, his sheep. He says this love is for his sheep. 
But look how he continues this in verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So who are these other sheep? We have to ask the question, who are these other sheep? He has this love for his sheep and vice versa, but who are these other sheep? So far in this context, who has he been, who has he been speaking to? To the Jews. He's been indicting the Jewish and the Jewish leaders. This flows over from chapter 9 after the healing of the blind man and that the religious leaders are calling him out and he's speaking to the Jews and the Jewish leaders. He's indicting the Jewish leaders at the time and he's rightfully claiming the lost sheep of Israel as his own just like he did with that blind man who was thrown out the temple in chapter 9. He was thrown out the temple. Christ came to him and says, believe in me essentially and he drew that lost sheep of Israel to his flock. He's been speaking to a Jewish audience But now he says that there are other sheep that are not of this fold of Israel. So who is he talking about? Who are these other sheep? Non-Jews. Gentiles. Believer, did you ever think about that this passage has you in mind here? That you're in the New Testament here? You're here. Why? Because Jesus is saying, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, not of Israel. There are going to be Gentiles who come into this flock, and they will come into the flock. And just like the sheep he describes in in verse 3 of this chapter, he says, those sheep, this other flock of the Gentiles, they also will hear my voice, and they will come to me, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. Then a very real way, in a sense, that your Savior had you in mind when he said this. That when he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, believer, he had you in mind. That you are part of the fulfillment of verse 15, verse 16. And just like the other sheep, you'll hear his voice and you will come to him. And I want you to note here that he doesn't say that he leads the, the sheep of the Gentiles into the fold of Israel but rather he gathers the sheep of Israel and he gathers the sheep of Gentiles as one flock, one people, one body. And if if you're listening to this, in this context, this is a radical assertion to, 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 to say that Gentiles and Jews would be one? Like you're taking this one into one flock with one shepherd? You're saying we're gonna be one? Why is that radical? Because of the Jewish year, the Gentiles were, they had nothing, no regard for them. They hated Gentiles. They were filthy. They were, they were God-haters, breaking God's law. They had no claim to this Jewish history. But Jesus here is saying, no, 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 I have other sheep who are not of this fold, and they will be in my fold. I will call them, and they'll be one, one body, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2. That in his fleshly body, he made the two opposing groups one. And so he said, I will bring them, and they'll be one just as they are one with Christ. This is why Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male or, nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The playing field is level at the cross. That he came to save Jew and Gentile, and he's going to make them one. He died for his sheep, and all of his sheep are saved by his sacrifice. Now, now, before you get lost in, in the theological profundities of all this, I pray that you would first marvel here at the main point he's getting at here, that his, 
intense love that he has for you, that he would come to sacrificially lay down his life for you, that he had you in mind, that the intense love that your shepherd has for you, that he laid down his life, that when he died, he didn't die just hoping that you would somehow stumble across Christianity and just come by his way and, and give your life to him. But no, when he died, he stopped you in the tracks, so to speak, as Saul was on the way to Damascus. He stopped you in the tracks of your sin, and he opened your eyes to see his glory, and he says, you are mine. You are mine. You are mine. You're in my flock. He called you. When we talk about these things, first marvel at what Christ is seeing in his own words. He died for his sheep. If you're in Christ, he died for you. You are his. You are his own. He bought you. He purchased you. You are his. Marvel at that, that he died for you. He opened your eyes to see your wretched sin, that you were lost in hell, in the pit of hell, and he pulled you out by his gracious love. That this is what your Savior has done for you. Meditate on that, beloved. So that you know him. And that's why when you hear the very word of God, you hear it because he gave you a heart to receive it. This is his. It's his work. His, his mission involved your soul. His mission involved your soul. Don't waste your time trying to understand God's mind. Do not be the judge of God's justice. Rather rejoice in his salvation. And by the way, if, if you are here this morning and you do not know this shepherd, shepherd and the saving of your sins, this is truly a universal offer for anyone. That anyone who would hear this proclaimed Christ who was raised on a cross, who died and rose again, who was sitting at the right hand of the Father, this is a uni- universal offer for even you. If you hear this message, do not harden your heart. Turn to this shepherd who died for sins and he will receive you warmly. This is why Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, that therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. So repent. Repent today. Turn from your way and turn to him. This is a universal invitation for you. This detail here of redemption is not only sacrificial, it's not only particular, but it's voluntary. It's voluntary. Christ here was not coerced to the cross. He was not coerced to the cross. He came to the cross. He came willingly. That's why he says in verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my father. So even though the good shepherd's redemption is sacrificial, it's also worth noting that he was not subjected to this. Nor was he just a victim of circumstance that, oh, he he said the wrong things and eventually they overtook him and they they nailed him to a cross. No, no, no. He was not a victim of this circumstance. This was the purpose of his coming. He willingly came. Not only did he lay down his life as a sacrifice for his people, he willingly did this. So although he knew the wolf was coming, he does not abandon the sheep like the hired hand. Rather, he lays down his life for the sheep willingly and according to the will of God. In Acts chapter 2, verse, verse 23, Peter is indicting the Jews there. 
He's saying here, you nailed him to a cross, Jews. He's speaking to Jews. You nailed him, right? Their responsibility. You nailed him to the cross. You murdered the Savior. But at the same time, what does he say? He was delivered over by their predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This was all his work and all his will. That make no mistake, the father willed for the son to lay down his life for the sheep, but his mission is to willingly do so. I just love this here in the same breath that Jesus affirms his own authority and also his submission to the father. That he's showing here that I have the authority to take it up and I also have authority to lay it down, but this was also given to me, this commandment by whom? My father. We see the relationship of the Trinity at play. That having affirmed his authority, he says in verse 18 that this charge, uh, commandment or charge, you can say, I received it from my father. That this was a unified will within the Godhead where the son lovingly submits to the father's will. And we see the Godhead at play here in beautiful harmony. They saw sheep without a shepherd, lost and dead in sin. And the father drew the sheep into the son and the son lays down his life for the sheep and the spirit applies the work of the son's redemption by regenerating the dead soul. That this is a unified plan in the Godhead. The father saw the sheep, drew them to the son. The son died for the sheep. The spirit comes and regenerates that plan of redemption. That this is all a unified mission. This mission was not only to lay down his life, but he says, I, I come, I have authority to take it up again. That from the start to finish here, that no man takes it from me. That he willingly went to the cross. That he laid down his life. That this here asserts the very power, the goodness. Why is he a good shepherd? He's a good shepherd because he cared for his sheep. He loved his sheep. And he loved them in such a way that he gave up everything for his sheep. And he did so willingly. In their place. So his mission is redemption. And this redemption is sacrificial. It's particular. It's voluntary. Once you keep in mind now, we talked about the indictment of the kings and the false shepherds of Israel in the Old Testament. And God says, essentially in those contexts, those books, as he, when he casts judgment upon those leaders, as those false kings, the false shepherds, as he pronounces woes against them, he also says, I'm going to remove them from office. He's going to cast a judgment upon them. He's going to strike them down. But now let's ask the follow-up question from that. In those judgments, if he is going to rightly indict those false shepherds of Israel, who's going to replace them? And now we see this allegory in John chapter 10 is the beginning fulfillment of the replacement of those false shepherds. We looked at Ezekiel chapter 34. And later on in that chapter, we see here that's pointing to a new shepherd who's coming on the scene. In verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, it says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. And he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. 
And now Jesus comes in in John chapter 10, and he's the beginning fulfillment of this one, the great servant of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the shepherd. So when he says, I am the great shepherd, he is affirming, I am the good shepherd. He is affirming here that I am the one that the Old Testament pointed toward. I am the good shepherd of Israel. I will do what they did not do. I will love the flock. I will lay down my life for the flock, and I will do so willingly that Jesus himself is the good shepherd, just as it always been predicted. So as you dwell on this good shepherd, beloved, as you dwell on who this good shepherd, you think of Psalm 23, now you realize why it is that you shall not want. As you see this good shepherd, you see why is it that I don't need anything else outside of my good shepherd? Why is it that I can go through the valley of the shadow of death and still fear no evil? Why is it that the Lord can prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? How is it? Because your good shepherd fulfills all of it from start to finish. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says all the promises of God find their yes in him. So yes, you can dwell in security. Yes, you have no need. Yes, you can walk through the valley of the shadow of death because Christ is your ultimate good shepherd. And so I will dwell in the house forever. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. How is that possible? How will goodness and, and goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life? How will I dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Because my good shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ is my shepherd. He died for me. I am his. And therefore, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. That's how good he is. That because he died and he rose again. If you lose sight of this, this is important now. We see here this good shepherd, his mission is redemption. Believer, if you lose sight of this mission, if you lose sight of his mission, it will also show impact in your own life's mission. If you lose sight of what he came to accomplish, then your life will suffer as well. It will inevitably impact the mission in your own life that you will lose sight of why you are even here. If you lose sight of this important truth, it will impact your joy. Where is your joy in the midst of life's struggles? Where is your joy in the midst of adversity? If you forget that the good shepherd came to lay down his life for you, your joy will suffer. You will lose perspective in the face of trials. You won't know why you're in the valley of the shadow of death that you will question why you're there. You'll question, where is my good shepherd? Is he even here? If you lose sight of this mission, your life will suffer. It impacts your battle with sin. How is it that I have power over sin because of my good shepherd who died to sin? It will impact your love for the church. Do you love the church he died for? He died for this church body here. He loves this church. If you lose sight of that mission, you will not love what Christ loves. Your hope for eternity will suffer. Do you have hope in life and in death? Where is your hope state? And I can also say by implication, if there is none of these loves, if none of these marks are within your life, question your soul this very moment. Do you know this good shepherd? Or do you just talk about him? Because the the, the follower, the sheep of the good shepherd will cling to the shepherd, will love the shepherd, will rejoice in the midst of trials in the shepherd, will find hope in the shepherd, will go to the shepherd. The sheep will stay close to the shepherd because they find him to be good. Is he good for you? Do you find him as good? That this is this Christ, this Savior. 
that we know that my shepherd not only takes care of me, but he died for me. And so we see here, why is it here that Christ can take this this teaching and feed it to his sheep? Because we see here that in this message that he gives here, he realizes out of all others, all who have come before me, I am the good one, the good shepherd. I'm not only the door, but I'm also the only door. And I am the good shepherd for the sheep. So we see that my shepherd not only takes care of me, but he died for me. And so may the mission of this Christ, may this mission, beloved, be the daily meditation of your heart. To think about the mission of Christ, that should be the constant meditation of your own heart. That how often do you think about what all is yours in this shepherd? What all is he entrusted and given because of his own work? That should be your meditation daily of what he has done and what he's accomplished. Let's pray. Father, we, we come humbly before you, knowing, God, that, that you are our sufficient Savior in Christ, that we have a good shepherd, that, Lord, we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't even know what later on today holds, but we know that you hold it all in your hands, and we take comfort in you. For you are good, and you are mighty, and you are perfect, and you are righteous, and that we have all that we need in you. Lord, in these times of, of tumultuous life now, God, of uncertainty of what tomorrow brings, I pray, God, that we would look to our shepherd and take delight in him, that we'd be renewed in his perfect work and take confidence in his perfect work of redemption. And Lord, we just thank you for what he has done in our place. It's his name we pray. Amen.